Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The gospel of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's a simple gospel. It's not a mathematical formula that some dusty old professor has scrawled with chalk across the chalkboard, has on this massive intimidating surface before you today, as though you have to decipher what the gospel may possibly be. It's not reserved for those brilliant minds that come maybe only once or twice in a generation. The gospel is a simple gospel. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Professors come, scholars come, brilliant persons come to Jesus too, and the history of the church attests to this, but children come because it is a simple gospel. The word of life that we are talking about today, it is a simple word. If anyone makes this clear in the scriptures in terms of gospel or Bible writers, it is the Apostle John. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of John. You know that earlier in the Bible. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation. We are beginning the study of 1st John. Any of you who've ever dabbled in the Greek language in order to study the New Testament, which is written in Greek, you know that when you begin to read the Bible, as you're learning the Greek language, you always, almost always begin in John. 1st <laughs> John, usually, because John writes simply. He gives us the word of life, the gospel, and he does it in a simple way. He's not like the educated Paul who gives twists and turns of logic like we saw even in Philippians, though that's the least difficult of his letters. He's not like the Dr. Luke who uses such a wide array of words that it's sometimes difficult, especially in the original, to get through that. Not even like impetuous Peter in 1st and 2nd Peter who's writing, even though he's a fisherman and uneducated, his writing can be very difficult in its sentence structure and its syntax and how things are put together. Not John. John is simple. John uses simple words. And he often pairs them together to make them even simpler. And these are all the words we're going to see throughout this letter. Things like life. You know that concept? <laughs> even children do. Life and death. Light, there it is, everyone knows light, and dark when you turn it off. Love and hatred, sin, obey, truth, lie, father, son. My four-year-old son knows the meaning of every one of those words. And if you know those words, you know like 70, 80% of the letter that we're about to study. Simple, simple words. It's really like this chalkboard of the gospel is in front of us, but instead of a dusty professor with this mathematical formula, it's just the alphabet. It's a kindergarten teacher <laughs> telling you the gospel. We're going through the alphabet. These are basic things. You can understand the gospel. Your neighbor can understand the word of life that John will give us in this letter. It's presented very simply. You know it. Did Jesus die on a cross so that whoever believes in him has eternal life and is forgiven? Do you know that? 
A, B, C, D, E, F. Simple. It's simple. We're going to see that in this letter. But now I do need to add, if we flip the chalkboard over, you will in fact find a very abstruse mathematical formula. Bring the dusty professor back in. Because I have been here saying that the gospel is simple and a child can understand it. And that is true. And you will find that in 1 John. But this same gospel is also incredibly rich and complex. The very same one, not another one. It's the other side of the chalkboard. And both are true. God in his wisdom packages the message many times for us in a way that is simple. All of the essentials can be understood by a small child. And yet, the gospel itself is not boring. You can understand the gist of the gospel in one minute. You will not understand all of the gospel in three lifetimes. There is a richness and a complexity about the gospel. It's on the other side of the chalkboard, and it's true, and you are going to see that in this remarkable letter. That somehow, 1 John is such a letter that you can read it one time, and it's simple. Simple words, simple concepts. And you can read it on and on and on thousands of times over the course of your life and not understand everything about it. Because there is a depth to it. And this is just how the gospel is. But John represents this very well. We say Jesus died on a cross for my sins. There's the gospel. You understand that. But if you just stop, say, okay, there's Jesus. I know him. He's that humble Galilean of the north. There he is extending a kind hand and a smile to a leper. That's familiar. I understand that. Do you also know that he was with the Father from all eternity? One with God himself in some mysterious manner. Within himself, two natures, Godhood, divinity, and humanity together. I don't know that. Do you know that? I don't understand that. This, there is a depth to that very thing, that very person we are looking at, Jesus. There is a simplicity, and he welcomes the children, and there is a depth that befuddles the scholar. The gospel, Jesus... He died on a cross. That's not difficult. My son knows this. You know this. Children know this. Here is a cross and Jesus died on it to forgive us for our sins. You can tell that to someone in an elevator in the space of a few seconds. If you flip the chalkboard over to the mathematical formula, what does it mean for Jesus co-equal with God, one with God himself for three hours upon the cross to be crushed by the Father and to suffer his wrath. How can he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening on the cross? You will spend the rest of your life and probably the rest of eternity contemplating the depths of the answer to that question. The gospel is simple. The gospel is rich. It's both at the same time. God packages the gospel simply and ensures that the basics of the gospel are simple enough for us to communicate to any culture, to those who are educated, to those who are uneducated, to those who are old, to those who are young, 
to those who know lots of words, to those who know few words. You can communicate the gospel to any such persons because God intends for you to communicate it, for this message of life, this word of life to spread like wildfire across the globe. And therefore, it comes in a simple package. But when you know the word of life, your whole life becomes about the gospel. And the gospel is rich and deep enough to sustain you, to fill your thoughts and sustain you and drive you your entire life. And beyond your life, into eternity, we will be hymning the praises of the gospel forever and contemplating its mysteries, the profundity, the depths of it. The gospel is simple. The gospel is rich. That is what you will come away from John's first letter, believing, because you're going to see it modeled for you in the way John writes, in what he writes, even in the four verses we're looking at today. So I'm eager to sit with you first, just like a little child in kindergarten, hearing the simple truths of the gospel, and then to flip the board and like a scholar to think with you about all of the richness that the gospel is. So let's see this. Let's see the word of life as it's introduced to us at the beginning of this letter in all its richness and simplicity here in 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched, with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Simple Mysteries, my brothers and sisters, and we can comprehend them in one sense in five minutes. At the same time, I could preach this sermon for five hours, and I wouldn't have exhausted the word of life. I could preach it for five decades over the course of a ministry, and I wouldn't have exhausted the word of life, and you will contemplate this five centuries and more there before the throne of God on a renewed earth. And you will not have exhausted the meaning of these four verses, nor of this letter, 1 John, that it introduces. You notice that John doesn't give us a usual introduction. We're used to Paul. He always states his own name, at least. To begin with, you'll notice 1 John never says John's name. Neither does his gospel indicate that he's John. Revelation does. But thankfully, by internal testimony, meaning we look at Revelation, and whoever's writing that is writing exactly the same as 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the Gospel of John. It's so distinctive. 
that's John. So quite clearly, this is John. You look at the earliest testimony of believers after the time of Jesus and the New Testament, and they almost unanimously say this was John the Apostle. But we don't have a usual introduction of him saying John an Apostle. But these four verses still are a very fitting introduction to the entire letter that we are going to study here. Because here what he does is he simply tells you, number one, what he's writing. What is First John? What is he and his companions, mainly the apostles, what are they writing to you in First John? What do you have in these five chapters of your thin pages of your Bible or on your screen? What is it? What John writes, that's the first thing. And the second thing is he tells you why he wrote it in the first place. And why are you reading it? Why are you spending your Sunday doing this? You could do something else. So these will be our two headings. Number one, why John writes this letter. Number two, oh, sorry, number one, what John writes in this letter. Number two, why John writes this letter. What he writes, why he writes it. Those are our headings today. So let's begin in the first two verses and simply look at what John writes, not just here, but in this entire letter that we'll be studying for the bulk of this year. That which was from the beginning, he says, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And verse 3, you notice, continues, reiterates what he just said, that which we've seen and heard from verse 1, we proclaim also to you. John proclaims it right now, right here. That's what this letter is. That which, 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 concerning that, that first word in most of your Bibles, that, that, he's proclaiming that in this letter. That's what this letter is for. That's what this letter is, him proclaiming this message. And if you want a summary of what is the message, it's there at the end of verse 1, concerning the word of life. If you need a four-word summary, I know it's not the subtitle I've given 1 John, but if you need a four-word summary of 1 John, it's the word of life. That's what he's writing. What is the word of life? Well, let's just begin like kindergarten, shall we? And look at the first alphabet that's written on one side of this chalkboard and say it's simple. A word in the New Testament, it's a message. Of life, it's a message that if you believe it, it gives you life. Is that hard? That's not hard. That's simple, the word of life. We see this, we will see this. At the end of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he will summarize what he's written by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write, that's a word, that you may know you have life. A word of life. If you remember the gospel, and the ladies are finishing this up in their study, at the end of his gospel, John, fourth book of the Bible, 
At the end of it, he says basically the same thing about that book. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, word, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. It's a word that gives you life if you believe it. That's not hard. That's not hard. That's simple. It's the word of life. That's what 1 John is. It is a message, and if you believe it, then you live eternally. The word of life. And as kindergartners, we could all nod our head. I mean, that's simple enough for us to understand. All right, flip the chalkboard. Because <laughs> there's more. There's something more to the word of life. Actually, there's someone more to the word of life. And for this, you have to think a little bit. And this is just how First John is going to be. No apologies. Because look at the first verse again. Okay, so we know word of life, message that gives life if you believe. Easy. Okay. But if you look at first verse again, the first verse, he says, that which was from the beginning. I know this is echoing John 1.1. 1, 1 which is echoing Genesis 1.1. We'll get to that. I take this to the, be the beginning of Jesus' ministry, unlike John 1.1. 1, 1. Okay, this is a message, that which, there it is, the word of life, that which. It is a message and it is about something that stretches all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Which we have heard, of course, because you hear a message. Which we have seen. That is a problem. <laughs> you don't see a message. If the word of life is simply a message about life, especially in this much less literate culture 2,000 years ago, then you're hearing it, yes. You're seeing it with your eyes. You say, well, it could be written down. Okay, but then what do you do here? Which we have touched with our hands. And I'm here to say that Braille was not invented until much more recently. So how can you touch a message that gives life with your hands? That's what you have to think about. You remember that the beginning of John's gospel, capital G gospel, his gospel account, in the beginning was the word. And that's echoing Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke. He spoke a word, let there be light, and there was, and so forth. So you can see these echoes. I'm going to take the beginning of 1 John, that which we have, that which was from the beginning, to refer to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and maybe you'll see why in just a second. But however you take that, it's very clear there's a connection between the beginning of his letter that which was from the beginning, and the beginning of his gospel account. In the beginning was the word. Do you see all of the similar wording that's being used? That which was from the beginning concerning the word of life. In the beginning was the word. He even talks about light and life in John chapter 1. So I just want to point out there is a clear connection between the beginning of 1 John and the beginning of John. You see that? 
in the beginning was the word at the beginning of the gospel account, is that referring to a message? Not primarily. In the beginning was the word, writes John there, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We're not talking about a message now. The Word was God. And the famous 14th verse, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Who are we talking about now? Who is the Word? Clearly, it's Jesus Christ in John chapter 1. And if there is a connection with John 1 and 1 John 1, then who is the Word of life, the that which we've seen, we've heard, we've touched? Who is this? It's not just a message. More specifically, it is Jesus Christ himself. There are two layers of meaning when he says word of life. Some of you are going to be very frustrated by that. <laughs> you want it to be very, very simple. And it is on one level simple, but there's another side to the chalkboard. And the word of life, it is a message that gives life if you believe it, yes. But in John's mind, it's more than a message. It's a person. It is Jesus Christ himself. The comparison is almost undeniable when you have John 1 in front of you. You have there in John chapter 1, the word that's with God and it becomes flesh. You see that? It's a word. It's with God. It becomes flesh. What do you have in 1 John? The word of life and the life was with the Father and was manifested to us. See that? The word of life, here he calls the life, manifested with the Father, manifested. The word of life, it's Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. And in this case, it's very much true. John 1 says the Word is Jesus. 1 John 1 says the life is Jesus. So the Word of life, it's Jesus. <laughs> Can't get any clearer than that, even if it's a bit complicated. The Word of life is not just a message that gives life. It is Jesus Christ himself. I hope that you're ready for this kind of richness of presentation of Jesus Christ. You're just getting a foretaste of it right here in the introduction to the letter. And it requires you to think and to focus, but once you have, you realize that John using very simple words. You know the word life. You know the word word. Look at these first four verses. What's the hardest word in there? Manifested in English, that's probably the hardest one. All the other ones, you know those words. This is simple, but when you start pushing on it, the chalkboard flips and there is a richness in John's presentation of Jesus Christ himself. He is the word of life. Those hearts here that are like the Greeks in Jesus' ministry who came to the disciple and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Those hearts are going to be glad for most of this year because you're going to be seeing Jesus just like in this passage over and over and over again. You're going to see him simply presented to you. You're going to see him with a richness and a complexity of his person presented to you. What is John writing about in 1 John? The word of life. But what is the word of life? 
It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you're interested in that subject, you'll be interested in this letter. Now, John is saying more in these first two verses. He's not only told us what he's writing about, these things we proclaim. These are the things we're writing. The word of life, it's Jesus. But he's also saying something specific about how he's presenting that to you. Namely, he's presenting it to us as an eyewitness. You see this? In the text, it's what we've seen, it's what we've heard, it's what we've touched. John wants you to know that he's going to be talking about Jesus Christ, but this isn't like you going out on the street and asking a random stranger, hey, who do you think Jesus is? And one person will tell you he's some kind of Eastern mystic guru, and someone else will tell you he's the spiritual universal world force. Someone else will tell you he was a very good moral teacher. Someone else will tell you he's the son of God. And you have to pick, which one is it? John wants you to know that this letter is about Jesus Christ, but it's not like that. It's not rumor. It's not speculation. It's not you sitting in your room guessing what Jesus may be like. If you didn't have 1 John, maybe you'd have to do that. But you've got this letter so that you can know with a certainty. This is a letter that comes to us from eyewitnesses. John was, in fact, when he says what was from the beginning. So this message about Jesus, from the beginning, which I take to be the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So all the way from the beginning of Jesus' ministry and following onward, all the things we know about Jesus, it comes to us through eyewitnesses, through the scriptures. It's what the apostles were. John, he says, heard these things. Jesus, and that about Jesus. He heard these things. Meaning, he heard Jesus' actual voice. Never a man spoke the way this man speaks. But more than that, he didn't just hear Jesus' teaching. He was on the Mount of Holy Transfiguration when God the Father boomed from heaven saying, This is my Son. John says, I heard that. In fact, Peter, the apostle, was up there on the mountain with John. And so John could say the same thing Peter says at the beginning of his second letter, quote, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves. Who's the we? It's Peter. It's James. And it's John. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him from the beginning on the holy mountain. Peter's point is John's point. This is not like Arthurian legend that we have in our heritage as Westerners in America where we know things about King Arthur, but we don't really know about King Arthur. We know about him fighting a dragon. He didn't fight a dragon. What happened? Legends developed 
centered around this person. And some people would see Jesus, the historical Jesus, as an Arthurian legendary figure, that he was a real person. Almost no one denies this, but that over time his followers, because they loved him so much and were so excited about him, added on dragon battles, added on legendary material, and that's what we have now. The difference is that we don't have someone 40 to 70 years after Arthur's life, writing down with manuscripts we still possess, telling us, no, this is who Arthur was. Then we'd know who Arthur was. But we do have multiple people doing that for Jesus. And that's John's point here. This isn't legend. This isn't mythology about Jesus. This is fact about Jesus himself, who he is so that you can be convinced and know clearly the true things about Jesus. That's what 1 John is about, to help you know those things. Now, if you just step back and look at what John is saying, he's trying to give you confidence in what he's going to tell you in this letter about Jesus by saying, I was an eyewitness, I was an ear witness, I was a hand witness. You may know that when it comes to believing the testimony of Scripture, including this letter, our ultimate assurance that this book is true is not external evidences, including the fact that John was an eyewitness. That's not our ultimate hope or belief or conviction as martyrs die for the testimony of the Scriptures. It's not because simply what John says, we know there were eyewitnesses. That helps, but that's not the ultimate reason. You may know the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we agree with it when it says of Scripture, first, there are evidences, like eyewitness testimony, that do help to establish what we call a historical reliability of this book. Here are some evidences the Westminster Confession gives of the Bible. It says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church. Got a lot of believers saying this book's true to a high and reverend esteem of the Holy Scripture, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, it changes your life, the majesty of the style, it's an amazing book, the consent of all the parts, there's no contradictions, the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God, a unity with different books, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth, pardon the English, abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. These are all external evidences that this is the word of God. And what John is giving you in these first verses is just the same thing. He's saying, listen, I was an eyewitness. It certainly increases the historical reliability of the documents of the New Testament, of the story that is told about Jesus, the fact that the writings we have were by eyewitnesses. That is the firmest source of historical knowledge in the ancient world possible or expected at that time. The Gospels, by common biblical scholar agreement, the Gospels were written 40 to 70 years after the death of Jesus. You have almost nothing else from 2,000 years ago written down that soon. 
where you actually have eyewitnesses. And as Paul says, as he writes the gospel to the Corinthians, he says, and you can go ask all the people still alive. John is saying, we were eyewitnesses. There are other eyewitnesses. You can be confident. Here's external confirmation, but it's not enough. In fact, the Westminster Confession says it. It adds, yet, here's the evidences, yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth, the divine authority thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. You don't have to be a scholar to live and die for the words that are in this book because the Holy Spirit confirms them, testifies within your spirit. These things are true. But let me ask you, if that's the case, why 1 John 1, 1 through 4? Wouldn't it be irrelevant that John was an eyewitness? He didn't have to be. Anybody could write it, inspired by God, and then we'll believe it by the Holy Spirit. So why does he say... I saw it, I heard it, I touched it. Why is it so important for us to know he was there? It's because the Holy Spirit is the one who does this work inside us and he can do it without any evidences. But most often he does it through evidences. You are convinced that Scripture is the Word of God. You don't need any evidence to believe that. And yet when Westminster gives that list of evidences, they help. <laughs> they help, don't they? Do they not help? Are you not encouraged when you hear these evidences? When you know that John was an eyewitness, that he was really there? Is that not in some way encouraging even to your faith? Your faith doesn't need it. Blessed are those who've not seen and believe, and yet it is an encouragement. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit who can convince you of the truth of 1 John without John being an eyewitness. It's the Holy Spirit who can do that, deciding not to do that. Deciding instead to convince you of the truth of 1 John, in this case, by the fact that he was an eyewitness. The Holy Spirit does that. People still alive. It's within one span, one lifespan, one generation. These things were written down for us. I belabor this point a little bit, and it might just confuse you, and that's fine. But I do need to mention it because it's going to come up a lot in 1 John in a slightly different way. If you have any familiarity with this book, you may know that John is going to give you a series of marks or evidences that you are truly a believer. Marks, evidences of true belief. Here we're talking about evidences that the Bible's true. But John's also going to talk about evidences that you're true, truly a believer. If you look at those evidences in your own life that John gives, such as putting off sin, living a holy, righteous life, loving believers, if you look at those marks and think, these alone are the basis of my confidence that I'm saved, you're going to live a horrible life. It's going to be terrible. Some of you probably have a bumpy relationship with 1 John because you read things like, anyone born of God doesn't sin. And you go, oh dear, oh my. But if you view these evidences in the way we're viewing the evidence of eyewitness testimony for the truth of this book, it helps you. How can you know with assurance 
that you are saved by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's it. And the Holy Spirit chooses, he doesn't have to, but he chooses to use these evidences of true salvation, love for the brothers, holiness of life. He chooses to use those to support your assurance. So we're not saying we can believe 1 John because John's an eyewitness, the end. We're saying we believe 1 John because the Spirit convinces us and uses the fact that he's an eyewitness to help convince us. We're not going to say, well, I know that you're a believer because you stopped sinning 40% this year. Here's the graph in the chart, and you can see the increase of your holiness and the love for the brothers. That's going to be a horrible, horrible path to follow. We're going to say, you can know you're a believer by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, but he's going to use these evidences to help you know for sure. Hopefully that's not too confusing, and we'll return time and time again to that. But I want to free some of you from the agonies you've experienced in reading 1 John, trying to match all the marks of true belief. It's meant to be an encouragement. All right, now we need to move from what John writes, the word of life, it's Jesus as an eyewitness. And we need to move now to why he writes these things to us and why we should read it. We need to move quickly or we'll be out of time. So let's move on to the second point, why John writes. For this, move down to verses 3 and 4. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim. There's what he writes also to you. And now look at this. So... That, we proclaim it, so that, here's the first so that, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, here's the second, so that our joy may be complete. The two so-that's tell you why John even chose to write. He didn't have to. The first so-that is in verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowships with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I have always thought it appropriate that the cross upon which Jesus suffered and died is shaped somewhat like a T. You have a vertical beam and you have a horizontal beam. Because what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross, we typically think first and foremost of this vertical beam. That Jesus, dying there on the cross, raising his sorrowful eyes to heaven, is reuniting us, a fallen humanity, with that first father, that parent, God, our father, from whom we'd been alienated by our sin. Jesus dying on the cross is bringing us to God, making us right with God. But there's also a horizontal beam, as if Jesus' arms are outstretched upon the cross because he's also bringing people together in fellowship with each other. And you see that dynamic in this passage. John's writing because he wants you to have fellowship with other believers but then he clarifies the fellowship you're welcomed into as a Christian is, first and foremost, it's a fellowship with God. 
You may remember this stated so well in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 where Paul tells us that Jesus himself is our peace. We're enemies with God. We're enemies with each other. And Jesus on the cross is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. You see the horizontal so that you may have fellowship with us. Here it's Jew and Gentile, but true for all believers. We're brought together into fellowship with each other. The two are made one, so making peace, or we would say fellowship, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. He said there's a hostility among humans in this world. You know it. You experience it all the time. And Jesus is the peace who brings us together. And then bringing us together, he eliminates the hostility that's keeping us from God. That's what John is saying. He writes for that very purpose. Because when you believe the gospel, you're brought into fellowship with believers. The hostility dies and you're brought into a fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So there is the first reason John writes. Not because he's bored. It's because he wants you to have this double fellowship with God, with believers. But there is something else to John's motivations, and this one may surprise you. Verse 4. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This, in fact, is so surprising that some early scribes who were copying the letter of 1 John changed our joy, it seems, into your joy. <laughs> we're writing this for your joy, not our joy. This is, we're not selfish. This is about you. No, actually, I think, I think that the meaning originally is our joy. John is writing because he wants to be happy in a true sense. He wants joy. That's why he's writing this letter to them and to us. If you look in his second letter, 2 John, he says, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. John's not an enemy of joy. He wants it, don't you? He wants joy. That's why he writes. In the third letter that he writes, 3 John, just half a page in your Bible probably, he says one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, almost the primary impetus of my whole pastoral ministry is in this line, and he says, I have no greater joy. Joy. I have it. It's my joy. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I write this to you so that you'd believe the gospel, you'd walk in the truth, and that's our joy. Every pastor knows the feeling of this verse. I have no greater joy than you walking in the truth. I do want you to have a nice job. I do want you to be healthy. I would love for your, you to flourish just as your soul flourishes and so forth. I'd love that. That's not the world we live in. What I want the most for you is that you walk in the truth. And that produces in me joy. But that's not just true of pastors, that's true of you. Anyone who shares the gospel with others, you are sharing the gospel, scary as it may be, because you want joy. 
When the other person believes, enters into fellowship with God, you have joy. Christian joy, as you see here, it's like a plant. If you keep it inside in the dark, it just withers and dies. It needs sunlight. You put it outside where it can be seen and enjoyed, and it grows. Your joy grows as other people's joy grows. Or it's like a very rich dish, a meal that if you try to eat it all yourself, it makes you sick. It's too rich. So you have to bring other lost friends in the other cubicles with you and let them enjoy it too. I'm telling you the gospel, the word of life, so that you may have joy and I may have joy. If you want your joy increased, then you share the word of life. That is why we have this letter. It is a man 2,000 years ago who was an eyewitness of Jesus, laid his head upon his chest, loved him and was beloved of Jesus, and wants you to know with clarity the message that gives life about Jesus Christ himself. Do you have the word of life? If you have the word of life, you got to give it to everybody else. <laughs> you can't keep it to yourself. Do you see that in verse 4? You want joy? Maybe your life is a bit uh, boring at the moment. Maybe you're so focused on your problems, you're feeling a great grief, and your Christian life is declining, and you're getting in the word inconsistently. You want one way to help you to begin to thrive in your walk with the Lord? In other words, you want your joy to be complete? Well, you look at verse 4. What do you need to do? We write these things. We proclaim. We've seen it. We testify to it and proclaim it. You tell people in your life who don't know about this, you tell them about the word of life. And you may say, oh, I can't do that. Um, I'm not the brightest tool in the shed. I'm not brilliant and I don't know how to talk about propitiation and they ask questions and I get tripped up. Look, Okay, flip that chalkboard over. You know the alphabet? <laughs> you know Jesus died for my sins? Then tell them that. John tells them that. Jesus lets children come. You tell your friends that Jesus died for my sins. And if you're a brand new believer and they say, what does that mean? And you might say, I don't really know yet. <laughs> come and see. Maybe come to church or let's, let's find out. You know the gospel. Every single one of you. And you want joy in your life? You want it to be rich and complete and fulfilled? Then just like John, you proclaim it to others. And if you feel like there are such depths to the gospel, I just don't know, and I want to know them more for my sake and others, then we'll keep coming on Sundays. That's what we're going to do for the bulk of this year. We're going to be looking at the basic gospel over and over and over and over again until you can't help but speak it. And then we're going to be turning the chalkboard around. And we're going to be seeing the riches and the depth of the glories of the gospel in a way that I pray you can't help but think it for yourself over and over and over again. This is 1 John. This is the simplicity of the gospel. This is the complexity of the gospel. This is life. This is joy. Here is the word of life set before you. Let us this year and ever abide in it. Let's pray. Spirit of God, I do believe that in looking at these words preserved from an eyewitness for us, 
We are not just looking at words. We're not just thinking about words. But you invisibly but powerfully are working, have been working for the last 40, 50 minutes and are working and will work when we leave this building to take these words and apply them in the most potent of ways into our own soul. You will take weak faith and strengthen its knees. You will take the doubter and, like Thomas, turn him around. You will take the one agonizing in suffering and pain, and you will, O Comforter, provide comfort. You will take those who are lost, alienated from the life of God, and you will give them life, even transfer them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. You will do this. You are doing this, and we look to you to do it more. Help us to be people of the gospel, of the word of life, to believe the simple message, to meditate on this complex message, to make it known and to know it, and to spend all our life now and into eternity doing justice for the sake of your great name.